Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business Show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And, you know, I have a pretty broad definition of that. And what's going on on the global front really should be all of our business. The implications are huge. Really delighted to have on the program Gordon Sondland. He is a former U.S. ambassador to the European Union. He was appointed by uh, Donald Trump. And he has a, a new memoir out uh, about uh, dealing with Trump, dealing with Europe, and dealing with government in general. That is fascinating. Uh, Ambassador, welcome to the program. Glad to have you on. Um, I, I, I read the, the press release, of course, and, and other material around the book, and uh, just begun looking, reading the book. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, but the part that, that caught my uh, attention was the, uh, the, the idea or the thought of, you know, dealing with Europe and dealing with, the, with Donald Trump. And I'm thinking, I can't think of anyone in Europe more difficult to deal, deal with than Donald Trump. <laughs> so you had your hands full. Well, I did have my hands full, but let me tell you, it was the opportunity of a lifetime to advance U.S. interests and I would do it again in a heartbeat, even with all of the water under the bridge. Right, right. And uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you found to be, and, and my, just to give you a heads up, because we live in this culture now when people are being interviewed, people are having conversations, whatever the deal is, is where is this guy coming from? Where is this person coming from? What am I dealing with? You know what I'm talking about. So I'm a historic Historically Reagan-style type conservative, uh, who uh, uh, now, frankly, after watching the uh, pandemonium in uh, government and the divisiveness in government, find myself more right of center with a libertarian streak. You know how that goes. I can acknowledge good accomplishments in the uh, Trump administration, while at the same time can't stand the way he behaves and does things in a country that has this motto, e pluribus unum, among many one. He's a great divider, in my, my opinion. Uh, and so it's that, that's where I come from. But I can acknowledge things that he has done well. And uh, talk about, in, as well as the fact that he did things poorly, you know, like, like a lot of people. Talk a little bit about what was it about wanting to work with Trump in this area that uh, seemed important or of value to you? What was your hope from an accomplishment perspective? Well, President Trump correctly identified that, number one, Europe is our most valuable and largest trading partner. And we have been there for Europe ever since we helped rebuild uh, the continent uh, after World War II. What he, what he correctly identified was that Europe puts on this sort of show about how we love one another and we're the best of allies and don't treat us this way. And Trump turned the entire relationship into more of a transactional relationship. He said, let's quit whining. We know we do not have a goodwill account with you. In other words, we wrote the biggest checks. We put in the greatest efforts to help rebuild you. And you would think that that, if nothing else, even though we, we never asked to be repaid uh, in, in the classic sense, you would think that that would give us an enormous amount of goodwill in an account where when we want something from Europe, we want them to cut us slack on trade, we want them to cut us slack on regulatory issues, 
they would treat us as a very, very special trading partner differently than they would treat others in the world who didn't do for them what we did. And the answer is they don't. They treat us the same and sometimes worse. And Trump really got to the bottom of that and said, let's make this transactional since you want to make this transactional. And he did the same with NATO, where, where very wealthy countries were not paying their fair share to support NATO, and we were picking up the lion's share of the bill and looking at countries like Germany, for example, that, that barely scratched the surface. So that was a fundamental overhaul of a relationship that many other presidents sort of nibbled at the edges but never really dove in headfirst the way Trump did. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I, you know, what's the history of wars? You know what happened in, uh, in uh, 1929 that led to World War II, right? The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Uh, what I see that came, you know, I give it mixed reviews, I guess what I'm saying. Weaponizing trade, you know the old saying, they give it to Frederick Bastiat, but it's doubtful he said it. If goods are not crossing border, troops are. And the world is a much more hostile place, I believe, because of some of our trade policy decisions. On the other hand, it was insane for the United States to subsidize rich countries in Europe to protect them. That was utterly insane. I give them very high marks on, on uh, you know, dealing with NATO. I'm terrified over what's going to happen as we have a weaponized world when it comes to trade. Well, listen, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And while trade was continuing and flourishing, I think what President Trump did was he tried to identify those areas where we were getting the short end of the stick and basically saying, look, this needs to be fixed. Europe would say, no, we're very happy with the status quo. And Trump would say, okay, fine, if you're happy with the status quo, then we're going to make an adjustment on our side that is not going to be to your liking. And Europe would say, wait, 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 don't do that. And Trump would say, well, why shouldn't we do that? I've asked you to fix an imbalance. If you're not willing to fix the imbalance, then we'll fix it on our side. And then all of a sudden, Europe came to the table for serious discussions. That's nothing different than a customer and a supplier entering into negotiations over pricing or over terms. And I think Trump treated it very differently than the diplomatic establishment would have preferred. Oh, well, no. <laughs> when it comes to government institutions and Trump, yet none of them like the way he did things. I can't think of a single one. Can you? No, not at all. And, and I'll, let me tell you something. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, to be fair to Republicans in general, the, the bureaucracy of the U.S. government, it's no surprise to you or your audience, the bureaucracy is a center-left-leaning bureaucracy. That doesn't mean they're bad. It just simply means they're center-left-leaning. So if you are a Democrat president trying to execute your policy, domestic or foreign, you are going to get a tailwind from those government workers who have to actually make the things happen that you want to have happen. If you are a Republican president, and granted this is a big generalization, you are going to get a headwind. You are going to get whistleblowers. You are going to get bad press. You are going to get seat draggers. You're going to get every possible device used to thwart your political agenda. When if this were a private company, not the United States of America, 
the leadership of the company would soon identify who is not rowing the oar in the right direction and would counsel them and say, listen, if you're not going to row the oar the way, you know, the leadership of this company wants you to, you're going to have to find another job. You can't do that in the U.S. government. And so consequently, Republican presidents generally have a much harder time than Democrats for that reason alone. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that that is as, as far as my adult life. I worked in D.C. Uh, for a U.S. senator as well as for think tanks, and starting in the '80s and, and in my lifetime, that's exactly how it's been. You, you know, uh, you don't have to be a particularly astute uh, student of political science to know that uh, left the center is a good description. That they have it's very agenda driven. Uh, these agencies are supposed to reflect the will of the Congress and the uh, executive branch, and they don't do that. I mean, I, I mean, we saw the Supreme Supreme uh, uh, Court decision uh, about the administrative state, right, and about how there's too much overreach uh, when it comes to uh, these agencies. And uh, within two weeks of that, those agencies produce more regulations that violated what the court said uh, regarding energy laws. Oh, okay, well, we're glad you have an opinion, but we're not going to abide by that. Uh, so there's no question about it. It's, uh, it's very, uh, very clear, I think. Well, in the Envoy, I talk about, you know, the, I know it's become a cliche, the deep state within the State Department. And the problem with the State Department is that you have an entire group of people, thousands of people, who really are in it for the journey, not the destination. The destination is achieving specific, deliverable objectives for your country. And I like to use in the Envoy, I use the sales and marketing uh, analogy. Everyone wants to be in marketing. No one wants to be in sales. Because in marketing, you're giving the fun parties, you're whining, dining, and that's the enjoyable part. Everyone comes, no one says no. The sales part is the tougher part. It's where you have to convince your, your uh, interlocutor that they need to change the behavior, they need to do something for you. It might be a gentle persuasion, it might be arm twisting, or it might be employing significant leverage as President Trump did. And that's the tough part of diplomacy that a lot of diplomats don't want to get their hands dirty with. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, and the latter, the, the part not so fun, is quantifiable, which is very which is not the case with the marketing part. Um, exactly. Talk about what you, 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 give a big, you give a big cocktail party and, uh, you know, everyone shows up for the free food and booze and everyone leaves happy, you know, uh, you could try to quantify, did I move the United States agenda forward? Okay, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But on the other hand, if you have to sit down and say, our trade imbalance is X billion a year, my goal at this meeting is to alleviate so many billion of that imbalance in the following way, and you can get up from that meeting and say, I succeeded by getting Europe to do something that was for our benefit and against their own benefit because they saw it as a larger relationship, that was something tangible that you could point to. Yeah. Talk about how things are already changing as far as uh, this accountability uh, of Europe 
uh, under the Biden administration. Because I, I can I can cite some examples myself, and I don't even watch it as closely as you do, I'm sure. Well, to be fair to President Biden, uh, you know, first of all, I think he's done a credible job in rallying the EU initially in the support of Ukraine. The problem with the EU is almost anything of, of substance and significance needs to be unanimous. So getting 27 countries to agree on anything unanimously is almost impossible. But I think the team has done a credible job of persuading them. I'm not a Biden fan, but I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, on the other hand, I think that Biden has reversed the Trump pressure on Europe. There is additional trade going on now. Trade, the trade activity between the U.S. and Europe is better, much better, but it's generally exports from Europe to the United States that's improved. Imports from the United States to Europe have not improved because Europe's regulatory system, the way Europe deals with our exports, is not the way you would deal with what I would call not a preferred trading partner, but the preferred trading partner, which we should be. And I think the Biden team has backed off on that a little bit. And that's why Europe, you know, now says, oh, we love Joe Biden. We hated Donald Trump because Joe Biden doesn't really ask them to do the hard things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're, there's a lot of resistance to that. Per, the preferred, you know, uh, frankly, uh, comes across as uh, American exceptionalism uh, when you when, uh, you know, the larger the larger liberal uh belief that that's something they want to distance themselves from. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I get torn feelings about well, the whole thing. I, just, I would just love a minute. To this, isn't about, this isn't about this isn't about exceptionalism in the general sense that we sort of consider ourselves uh, better than others for sort of um, moralistic or intangible reasons. We are the ones who stepped up after World War II and created the situation that has now made the European Union as strong as it is and as big as it is. We wrote the checks. Yeah. We did the hard work to bring Europe back. Other countries helped but didn't do anything compared to what we did. And had we said, well, look, we're going to do this. <laughs> no, had, <laughs> listen, had, we, had, we, had, had we said, look, you guys are on hard times now. This war was devastating. We're going to do all of this, and we're going to put it on a note, and you're going to need to repay us over the next 40 or 50 years. No one would have blinked an eye back then. They would have said, of course we're going to repay you. We never asked for repayment, but now we're right. not even getting some goodwill. So back to my statement. I'm not saying that it's logical, Ambassador. I'm saying that's how they think. That's how progressives think. Oh, this is reeks of ugly Americanism that we demand this, uh, you know, ex uh, exceptional uh, treatment. Uh, I'm not saying it's logical. I, I totally understand where you're coming from, although it, it sounds a lot like the uh, parent who bails a kid out without uh, saying anything's going to be required, and then they hold it over their head for decades later. And it, yeah, I think therapists would call that unhealthy, but 
No, I'm not saying it's logical. I'm just saying that's how I believe they think. And that was and that was manifest. That was manifest whenever I had meetings with the EU, and I took my career staff along, who always counseled um, caution, conservatism, don't rock the boat, don't ruffle feathers, and the I had specific. Yeah. You know, and I had specific asks of my counterparts. Um, they were very uncomfortable when I made some very direct asks and expected an answer and even said, if I can't get the answer I want, then we're going to have to go a different direction, and this is the direction I'm thinking of. They were shocked by that, and that yeah. is not conducive to a tough negotiation when your own team isn't on board. Well, absolutely. I, I can see that. Uh, Ambassador, I've got to run. Uh, they're going to be uh, cutting us off, and then uh, lots of people won't be able to hear this. But I do encourage people to check out your books. Very interesting. Uh, check out the new me memoir, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World by Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Thanks so much for being with us. And thanks so much for having me. I'm Kevin Price. This is The Price of Business. Stay tuned for more.